Welcome to Fintech Chatting presented by Tier 1 People, leaders in Fintech Executive Search. Follow us on your favorite podcast player or Fintech Chatter TV on YouTube. friends and welcome to another episode of fintech chatter the podcast for everything fintech down under first of all i just want to thank you tuesday the 31st of october marks the four-year anniversary of the very first fintech chatter recording it's been a crazy four years with global pandemics market crashes and market booms thanks for your support through all the ups and downs of this past four years and here's to another exciting four years ahead. Now on to today's show. You might recall that back in 2022, I went on a mission to showcase some of Australia's up and coming fintech startups. One of those companies is Datamesh Group, a global payment solution built in the cloud and harnessing AI. Earlier this year, Datamesh announced a 30 million Series A with NAB and ANZ Venture Arm 1835i. 12 months on from his debut appearance, I caught up with CEO and founder Mark Nagy to talk about how he managed to raise such a big round and what the future holds for Datamesh as we head into 2024. So Mark, um, amazing news earlier this year, 30 million Series A raise, really difficult period. How on earth did you do it? Yeah, look, uh, we are probably still a little bit sort of in shock, but, you know, I guess it's probably having the right product with the right story and the right planning and, a, and, a, and, a, and an opportunity out there. And the fact that we've got strong revenue growth and, and with proof of execution, I think the, the money's still there for the right stories, um, Dexter. And, uh, you know, we've got a very strong plan for future growth and international expansion. So, uh, you know, and provided the story that you can, is testable and provable, um, you know, the money's there. The money hasn't gone away. It's just what the money is being smarter and it's just not chasing anything that moves at the moment. So so I think that's how we've done it. And, you know, like there's an amazing team of people at Datamesh. So, you know, we have M&A experts in here. We have, And we also have probably what has also helped is we've got some pretty good customers who are also investors. And, you know, usually people go, well, hang on, if they're in, you know, there must be something to this story. But that doesn't hurt either. Um, and it, with that, you, you kind of touched on um, you know, the, the product and getting that right. We get, keep hearing this term, path to profitability. How important was that to be able to demonstrate your investors, hey, this is the path that we're on? Yeah, um, shockingly, not overly at the time. Uh, and, and I say that in that context because um, we were at the sort of tail end or probably in the early stages of things going to sand in terms of you know, the global economic markets. You know, all the IPOs were stopping and fundraising was falling off. But people were trading on contracts, and so you were raising capital against contracts. We were very fortunate in that not only do we have contracts with measurable volumes in really amazing companies as our customers or our partners, but we also had evidence of product being used and revenue growth underway. You could actually map out you could see the pathway to revenue. So it wasn't really hard to tell the story. Um, you know, as a result of that, that probably worked in our favor. 
I've got to tell you, I wouldn't like to have been doing it six months later, uh, you know, because we were pretty, being quite honest with you, we were very committed to a, a product roadmap. And so we, we needed that funding, and which is why we decided to, get, instead of taking 15, we took 30, because we knew we could double down and get a lot more stuff done in a short, shorter time frame. But now that we've got that product set, you know, we, we feel like we're in good shape and, and they are actually now delivering even stronger revenues. So, so but, uh, the final part of your question is to be cash flow uh, pathway to revenue, but then to also demonstrate cash flow positive is now more important than ever. Like, again, contracts were sort of, you know, the, the holy grail before. You must be able to demonstrate not only profitability, but also cost, cost control. You know, no more vanity projects. One of the challenges I think that we have in fintech or any any tech startup is that part of the attraction to investors has been that you're going to be the next big thing. And I think kind of one of the big shifts that we've seen is that you know kind of the one day has become two day. Right? Like we're now at the day where you've got to deliver. How do you get that balance then between? being innovative and, and doing something new and, and fresh where there's something that's going to attract investors, but also something that's practical and pragmatic enough that you can actually fix problems that are real problems today. Yeah, so look, there's definitely, there's definitely in the last 10 years and certainly even in more in the last 24 months, and we've seen a really big move now once one time nothing could go in the cloud everyone was nervous about it and you know like you've got the big cloud providers have been doubling down really heavily on their infrastructure organizations like banks and you know government departments you know that once would have never contemplated utilizing the cloud for hosting have now recognized not only the value of it but the the fact that it actually provides stability and reliability i think that's been one of the biggest certain certainly the biggest things that i've witnessed that's presented opportunity to to large organisations who are typically my customers or our customers at DataMesh. But that trend and the improvement of communications that go along with it that have really, you know, I mean, we, for example, we witnessed the NBN rollout in Australia, how that at the time when that was proposed was going to be revolutionary. Halfway through, we realised, some of us had already, already realised this, but we'd, we'd realised that when it, we shouldn't be laying fibre optic cables because the you know the cellular communications have improved to the point where you know things like 5G and that. So part of the dark art of this is again is to be not only looking at where the opportunities for these evolutionary changes present better customer experiences, whether it's my customer or my customer's customer or their customer. If so long as there is an improved experience attached to the change, it'll 100% get up. In my opinion, it'll 100% get up. So that. It's all about customer experience. It's all about um, unique diversification of of um, of those experiences that are being delivered. And instead of the old, good old one size fits all approach, now organisations are saying, "Look, if I want to capture that all important uh, in my world, say for example, retail spend, I need to be able to offer a better experience to my customer. And in order to do that, I need to be in greater control of the solutions that I deliver. And we're seeing a greater appetite for that." And the final part of it is, is that people are just not like accepting the old adage, well, you know, that's the one size fits all and you either take it or leave it. And this is why I think the disruptors are doing so many great things in the marketplace today is they're actually informing the, the greater population that there is alternatives and that you should be willing to ask for them and be brave enough to, to try them. 
what do you what do you see as being you know the kind of the 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 mood around these emerging technologies and do you do you think that they'll kind of end up being like an nbn where it's like the technologies evolved now that's actually redundant and we're moving into a different phase so every so there's a whole lot of answers there i'll try and keep it simple the 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 in my opinion the you have to always be saying to yourself i've got a technology here will the consumer adopt it uh so when we talk about things like um, payment transfers, Pay2 is a great one, for example, where you, you know, I'm, I pay you, I just enter your mobile number through my, that's a really nice tool. It is because it's convenient, it's fast, it's useful, uh, it's inexpensive and, you know, and you get real-time payments. So that's an example of something that really has found its way into the scene and consumers are starting to adopt it now and it's great, you know, and it's actually almost becoming weird when you don't use it. But there are also other things out there at the moment are really highly efficient. So, again, in my world, for example, contactless payments, tap and go, okay, if you want to change that, if you think about how sort of um, digital payments or NBN-based payments would be run in that space, the consumer doesn't really see what's there as broken, and so to convince the consumer that they have to use something other than what they do today, I don't think that's going to have a very high chance of success. And it comes back to the point I was making earlier that everything has got to pass that infamous pub test. You know, if the consumer will use it and adopt it, and you're, as a developer or a creator, not building things that you think are a great idea, which is often the downfall of you know, the innovation side of things, but if you as, a, as an innovator can say, look, I've got a better way of doing something, and you won't notice the difference, but all you'll get out of it is a much better experience that could be cheaper, faster, more rewarding, then it's going to have a greater chance of success. So all a lot of these things that we just talked about now, Dex, are they things that sit in the background as providers to my industry, for example, are, are going to be the benefactors of, but the consumer has always got to be first and foremost the person that you contemplate when you're developing something. Um. I wanted to talk a little bit about what this this kind of 30 million raise has meant for the business and how that's kind of helped you kick on. It's a, as we've talked about, a different landscape now. Um, it very much is kind of what I'd describe, Mark, as a world of haves and have nots. And I think for those who have been able to secure funding or are in a solid position, it seems like it's a, you know, potentially a really good opportunity out there to, to grow the business. How are you seeing things? Yeah, so look, it's it's definitely, like as I said, we, we wanted to raise 15. We finished up taking 30. Uh, that afforded us the opportunity to finish off some product development that we had and really kick off our global expansion. From a data mesh perspective, we recognised that our opportunity was founded in Australia but executed globally, and proof of that was the contract that we secured with Deutsche Bank. Um, so for us, we know that we're servicing, and it comes back to the stuff we were talking about earlier, that there's a global problem that we we see an opportunity to solve in terms of partnering with banks and acquirers around the world to be able to help them provide a better uh, solution and capability and technology to their work with us. We're good with that. But what it has also done is set us up, Dexter, to be able to go and put in place the relationships that we need that you'll start to hear more about in 2024 of some really cool stuff that we've done. And we know that we're globally relevant. Um, this has turbocharged our ability to get to that quickly. And, and 
you mentioned there Deutsche Bank. I mean, as a founder who's based in Oz, how difficult is it to get out there and you know, start to win these global clients? What are some of the challenges? And I guess, you know, some of the, maybe the, the kind of perceptions that they have of an Oz-based fintech business that you've had to overcome? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, it's only in, this is my third business that I started. And then this is, this is, it's only really in this business because of the end of town we play in that I've really understood that as an Australian company, it's incredibly challenging to actually get yourself on the global platform and the global stage. And in fact, just, just a little sidebar, a couple of months back, I was up in the US. I might head up there again this weekend, but I was up there in the US and I met a number of investment firms that asked to meet us. And they were very clear that the Australian fintechs at the moment are not highly popular, which is, you know, to me was a little bit shocking. That's because through those changes in the marketplace uh, and, the, you know, the environmental changes around the global economy and so on, that a lot of Australian fintechs that have raised money have actually now found themselves in the hurt locker. Um, so, so we have an equal challenge as founders to be able to prove that what we're doing is resilient and globally scalable because, to be quite honest with you, I think we make up 1% of the global GDP. So, again... So the great challenge in answering your question is, first of all, it goes back to, again, you must have the right solution. You must be well prepared and you must be able to demonstrate that you have dealt with the issue of execution risk. It's the number one thing that I heard constantly for the last 18 months is, how do I know as an Australian company at an enterprise level that you purport to be that you can actually deliver and execute and you're not going to bring my business down? Because you're going to sit between me and my customer and you need to get that right. So the answer to that is you've got to have the right partnerships. So you've got to be working with the big consulting firms, which obviously are expensive, but that pays dividends. You've got to make sure your financials are in order. You've got to make sure that you've got the relationships in place. And the other little tip that I'd give anyone listening to this is don't go for the biggest customer in the biggest end of town right away. It's for two reasons. First of all, chances of success are negligible and to zero. The money that you're going to earn from that is going to cost you, is going to be less than what it's going to cost you to do the deal. It's going to take longer to do it. And I have a favorite saying that everyone loves to be first to go second. So if you can find a small partner that's agile and willing to move with you and actually be that primary that goes, look, I know you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to get things wrong. Go with me. I'll go with you. We'll, we'll do the first one as kind of like a friendly relationship. Then you can point to that, the other guys. And I think that was one of the things we did well to actually demonstrate that we can execute. So when we get an organisation like Deutsche that comes on board, they already have prima facie evidence that we can actually do the job. And then the final bit, obviously, is having the right Rolodex, being able to get to people that are the decision makers. Do not get caught up with middle management because you'll get the rope around the axle and that'll go nowhere. You have to be brave. Dexter, it's about being brave. Yeah, look, it's an interesting point that you make because I think you know, when I look at just my observations of hiring for enterprise sales and, and you know, sales directors and managing directors to come in and grow these businesses. One of the qualities that I've been looking for, certainly over this last five, six years, Mark, is first of all, I guess, you know, that, that sense to know that this isn't an opportunity. It's probably more critical than being able to close a deal in many instances for a smaller business that you know, you need every bit of oxygen that you can get. Um, but I think the other thing is just the complexity of making these things happen. 
it's not just about having the one name in the organization it's all of the others that you've got to engage and take on the journey and that just takes time it takes energy it takes you know being a you know being able to influence takes understanding politics it's it's really complex for you know particularly if you're a green founder that's new to all this you're just going to get lost yeah no that's exactly right and and look i have another adage that i live try to live by it doesn't always work but i try my very best is and, and it goes back to planning again you know if you're an impatient person which i am uh you know you you will make mistakes so you need to be you need to be assuming that once this is really important in the sales cycle you're just talking about once you've established a relationship with an organization and you've established a rapport whereby they are genuinely interested in being a customer or a partner, you have to assume from that moment onwards they are actually going to be looking for reasons why not to do it. Okay? So if, and I know that sounds rather Machiavellian, but what I, the point I'm trying to make is, is they're looking for validation along the way that they can execute without risk. And everything then moves from, it's kind of like, you know, the, the honeymoon stage until now we go we're off to get you know we're off to the church to get married um you know in that cycle you now that is going to be the difference between whether you're actually secure the deal or not and i see so many organizations that get right up to the one yard line and they fall over because they haven't done their prep they haven't done their planning they haven't researched i mean customers organizations love apart from when they when they get to that point they want to know that you've researched that relationship within each of its life. They want you to be able to say to them, look, I understand that you're doing one of these. And those little things often considered offensive are actually not. They're proof points that you've done your homework. You know? And then the other thing is always, always be willing to be a partner. They're not a customer and you're not a vendor. Be a partner. If you always describe yourself as a partner, again, you'll demonstrate that you're actually in this together. And then I love skin in the game deals. I like money up front because that's always a proof point that, you know, you, you, you're, you're serious. Money changing hands is always a great sign of, you know, uh, commitment. But then demonstrating that, you know, you're willing to have a bit of skin in the game, but at the end of it, if you deliver, you want lots of upside. So, you know, risk, risk. You talked about some of the challenges that Aussie fintechs are, are facing when they're, they're looking to go global, Mark. Um, what are some of the opportunities that you've noticed that perhaps you know aren't really being exploited? Yeah, so it, it it really comes down to if you if you were to draw sort of Maslow's hierarchy of you know our industry, for example, you start with the consumer at the top, and that consumer globally is pretty well the same. You know, they either buy face to face or they buy online, uh, and then it just sort of trickles down from there. You know, you're dealing with a retailer that deals with you know, all sorts of service organisations. At the end of the exercise, there's some form of acquirer. Now, again, I'm talking very specifically about my thing. So you must always design whatever you're doing from the top down and from the bottom up, okay? You need to you need to run those exercises. Um, you know, I had a great opportunity to do some work with IDO several years ago, you know, and they taught me a very valuable lesson. And it, they were the inventors of human-centric design modelling which essentially you must put yourself genuinely in the consumer's shoes and ask the question. And look, I don't deal with consumers at all, at all. But 100% of what we do is designed for the consumer. Okay, so so the, the, again, the, the, the critical thing for 
and we have a doubly hard as Australian companies. And again, I don't want to sound like you know there's any sort of syndrome here, but we have to be just that much better because if we want to play on the global stage, and some organisations are quite happy just to remain domestic, but you know Australian companies have uh, have got lots of opportunities. So again, when I come to your question, the biggest problem, and certainly in my space, is that the architecture that most of the 30 plus acquirers, 30,000 plus acquirers around the world are running, hasn't kept up with the demand of the consumer or the retailer and the, and the divergence between industry groups. So for example, in my world, again, the experience that you would see, say, in a quick service food restaurant is very different to what you'd see in a service station. And yet those two parties now can coexist together in, under the one roof. So how do you make that functional? How do you make that a single source of truth for the retailer so they get to know their customer better so they can deliver a better example? Financial institutions that provide technology to process payments where they've typically also been the tech partner, that has changed and that's changing rapidly. So the, the opportunity exists where how do you partner with acquirers not compete with them is my view. How do you actually, and that's the pathway we took, so a lot of organisations that are disruptors today are going to find it very hard to backtrack from being competitors to banks and acquirers. Okay. We, fundamentally, we fundamentally recognise right at the very beginning, you have to pick a team, and we've picked bank and acquirer team and schemes, and we've said we don't want to compete with you guys, we want to partner with you because, quite frankly, you own the market share. So I'm giving you a little bit of my secret sauce here, but... Yeah, well, you actually you actually done a beautiful job of running my um, sequence of questions because what I wanted to kind of ask you next was, um, if you were to start again, what would be the approach that you'd take? And bearing in mind that we're in a very different kind of funding environment now, we've seen some of these models. If you talked about the disruptor, you know, we're not going to see another neo bank getting off the ground. We're not going to see another Uber get off the ground. I think those kind of days of regulatory arbitrage, as somebody put it to me the, you know, the, a few weeks back, I think now that, that opportunity is gone. Um, what, what do you see if you were a founder that was having to bootstrap? What, what do you think would be the approach that you would take? I think it's, it's, it's critically important that first step you is you must plan what it is you're trying to do in the market and test it with an inch of its life in, on paper. The second thing is you, you need to bring a partner business along that will be a key stakeholder for your future. Again, it goes back to my point earlier. You must, I think, you know, the magic of what we did at Datamesh is that we got, you know, the OTR group uh, to actually be the guinea pigs and, you know, We'll be eternally grateful for them signing on to be our partner to actually say, yeah, look, we're willing to develop with you. We know you're going to screw things up. And so my advice to any founder is don't just build the solution you think is right, but actually engage with some organisation that is effectively going to be your customer, but is one that's also willing to be with you on the journey, good, bad and indifferent. Like let them, let them be your test guinea pig, if you will. And that's why I say to you, don't go too big, but also don't go too small. You know, too small doesn't doesn't have relevancy. And that's, again, why I think part of, you know, I do say that, you know, the elegance of what we were able to do at Datamish was, you know, and I'll be eternally grateful for it, is to get the OTR guys to come on board with us and be our, you know, our, our launch customer. And so use that use that philosophy to, to, to go, because I see so many great ideas that just stall 
because the bit they're missing is not just the go-to-market, but actually the launch customer. Yeah. Um, you touched on next year and some big news. Anything that you can share with us? Um, uh, look, you know, I'd probably, probably have to say not only that we are about, probably the closest I can get to it is that we're about to uh, execute a, a very significant global contract. Uh, which I think you know that 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 sets us up for the future. Um, um, you know, Dexter, if you want to talk to me a little bit in the new year about it earlier, <laughs> I am happy to give you a bit of a scoop. Uh, I, I think I think uh, for us, it's really super exciting. You know, the genesis of the company was to start building stuff that we really didn't want to do, but we had to to get started. We've now really finished off our product set, and we're tailored ourselves to become a software as a service company. That means we're getting out of hardware, which means we don't have to be on the tools as much. We can be more of a software company. But it also means we're now pivoting to an organization where we're distributing through partnerships, global global organizations. So that that probably give you a half a clue as to where we're going. Um, and so the you know the long and the short of it is, you know, to be the to be the front end as a branded product under one of those global brand names that you would know. Um, you know, and where they're they're the they're the reseller of our product. I think that's very exciting. So sorry, I'm probably not being definitive, but that's all right. It's uh, you know, we I don't want to scup out any deals, and as you said, these things have a habit of falling over the final yard. So I don't want to be the the one that <laughs> facilitates it. Um, Mark, it's been fantastic to reconnect and and hear about the progress that you've made. Um, we get some amazing people listening to the, this podcast. Could be clients, could be talent. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? I think just come through our LinkedIn profile, the company LinkedIn profile. Um, you know, the uh, I know that sounds probably a little bit vanilla, but you know, it's it's becoming quite an, a popular source to, for people to communicate with Data Mesh at the moment. I mean, because we're a B two B company, we know we don't really have a you know this amazing website that's not how we work um so if they would like to come to us if they could reach out through linkedin we'd be we'd be glad to hear and we are hiring at the moment so you know again if there's people looking to be part of something pretty special you know um we are looking to, to we look we are looking to hire some people mainly in project management and technical space as we are growing quite rather quickly well as always folks thanks so much for tuning in if you're coming back thanks so much for your support And if you're new to the show, make sure you follow us on your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. It really helps me promote guests like Mark and great Aussie fintechs like Data Mesh. Until the next episode, keep well. Fintech Chatter is produced by Tier 1 People, leaders in fintech executive search. We'll find world-class leadership talent to build world-class fintech ventures. And you can find us at tier1people.com.